Hey folks, this is Tony Russo from the So What's Your Story podcast. Um, this week, we had a little bit of trouble with the audio. I just wanted to give you the heads up. My voice, fortunately, is the one that kind of drops in and out. So if you hear my voice sounding weird, it's uh, I'm sorry and we'll do better next time. Enjoy the show. I find myself telling students more and more to give the reader more white space, um, to craft discrete scenes that are almost cinematic. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Jane Satterfield, the poet in residence for Salisbury's annual Poetry Week. Jane is an award-winning and nationally recognized poet whose work has been featured in the American Poetry Review, the Antioch Review, and the Notre Dame Review, among many, many others. So welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here. As we have been doing this every year, we've been reaching out to the poet in residence and just kind of picking their brains and seeing what they're up to. But how did you get kind of pulled into Salisbury Poetry Week this year? Well, I had the good fortune to um, have Tara Elliott uh, reach out and say she'd like me to come, and the event sounded so wonderful. Um, the chance to work with poets at many different levels. I teach um, university students, which um, having the chance to work with um, middle school students and high school students and then um, grown-ups, um, as well as I had the chance to go into um, two classrooms, I think at one in um, Adam Tavel's class at Warwick Community College and then um, John Neve's class at um, uh, Salisbury University. So that was fun, too. So it's been a real, like, teacher treat. <laughs> yeah, I can, and, you know, I kind of, in doing a little bit of homework, I saw where, you know, mentoring students was something that has and something that's been important to yes. you. So this really sort of seems to sort of stretch you across the spectrum Absolutely. of ability and experience and, you know, depth of, of poetry with the people you've been working with. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, I know uh, sometimes you can, well, as a poetry um as a poet who teaches, I often see students um, being drawn toward more STEM courses because, or more business courses because they believe that that is much more practical. Um, and you hear a lot of, you know, trash talk about poetry um, <laughs> and its relevance in the contemporary world um, from non-poets, but also sometimes from poets. I mean, poets have often written like, you know, Auden, poetry makes nothing happen, and Seamus Heaney saying, you know, that poetry doesn't stop a tank but it still can call us to justice. So I, I think that it's it's nice to have the opportunity to introduce people to the good work that poetry can do and the way that it can be um, a sort of repository for the stories that we share, the people and places that we value. And something that may be underappreciated is the effort that comes before you sit down, the, the self-reflection and the trying to find a way to get at a topic or try to find a way to get an idea that's not that's beyond prose or that that prose isn't isn't mm -hmm. doing a good enough job at that that's a that builds a kind of thinking that very few other endeavors do where you're like okay well what how do i distill this more what can i take out of this how can i say this better and the practice of that is more valuable, I think, than than. Yeah, absolutely. Because certainly, poetry. Um, when you when you write poetry, I think you're you're practicing um, associative ways of thinking. 
um, and you're practicing empathy and you're practicing um, intuition and working on intuition. And I think so often we're driven to think in very logical um, ways to follow the train track, <laughs> you know. And so it's, I think that's one of the great things that, that you do when you're a poet is like to stretch that capacity. And I think that's what, um, when certainly when I was seeing um, in the schools, when students are given that capacity to see what language can do and kind of play with it, they feel empowered um, because they're learning to, to sort of that terrible saying, like, we think outside the box, mm-hmm. but poetry does allow you to think <laughs> in other ways. Um, so <laughs> Only business could take a cliche <laughs> and make it a... a, a make a, it a brand, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Well, I think this one, Tony kind of touched on something, and, and it's one of the things I always come back to when I when I talk to poets, is this sense of you have to, and I think it was maybe Christopher Salerno who sort of mentioned this, and ever since he mentioned it, I've always thought of it, but it's the art of distillation, yes. taking these complex thoughts or these large images or whatever it is that you, you the poet, are trying to say and trying to distill it down into its most raw form and to do it in such a way that it doesn't take you know 30 pages you can you know clearly push that across within right. within the confines of a poem and to me I find that that is just the most herculean feat and it's the thing that I appreciate most in poetry right right because poetry is also I mean it relies on music right it's meant to be heard so thinking about the patterns of sound the sonic texture of a poem is part of what you distill the parts that are not musical and that's hard too I was surprised when I went to um, a writer's colony and got to see um, and talk to composers Um, as somebody who writes primarily in free verse I was seeing that there's a lot of crossover because um, when I start a poem it's often driven by the collision of an image and, and a sound pattern and I have to make that music work to develop a narrative um, so it's almost like building that you know sort of line by line it's it's fascinating the way that poetry can get you to think that way to think about the music and the texture of language not just its you know function as a vehicle of utilitarian communication there's a difference between writing for an oral audience absolutely and writing for readers right and- Alliteration doesn't work as well for me out loud as it works on the paper. Now, it might work well for you, but mm-hmm. like as I'm going through, I'm like, okay, well, this this isn't going to get said. Like, people are going to be so distracted by how much I'm spitting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not gonna, they're not right, gonna right, right. Alliteration is one of those um, vehicles that's like often a first point of go-to. Right. I think especially for advertising, right, because you want something that hits hard and heavy and, and is memorable. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's because of the you think about the Anglo-Saxon, you know, poems that had that kind of heavy beat, um, you know, and, and that made it easy for audiences to remember and for the reciters to, you know, cover their book-length poems right. yeah, over the course of many evenings. <laughs> and one of the things I, I had read that you had talked about was that, because you also do nonfiction, you yes. also have memoirs, you do essays, mm-hmm. which I find is this, an incredible balance between being a successful poet and being a successful mm. nonfiction um, you know, writer. To me, I'm just tremendously impressed by that. Oh, thank you. Um, it's but, fun. <laughs> You know, and I think you had, I'd read somewhere where you had said that um, prose and, you know, sort of the essay format or, or doing those things was sort of kind of like a welcome break from some of the rigidity where 
kind of poetry kind of mm-hmm. not that I don't mean to go back to forcing into the box, but there are rules and to make it work, you have to really pay attention. Yeah. Whereas in I'm, I myself is an, am an essayist and short story writer. I've got I've got time. I've got sentences. I've got paragraphs, you know, to mm-hmm. work with. And when I thought that was really interesting that you had said that, you know, that form kind of gives you a kind of gives you a little bit of a break mm-hmm. from that. And I, I just thought that was really like an interesting point to make. Well, thanks. It's it's I think when I first started writing prose was because I couldn't quite find the way to put material into the space of a poem. And um, that was, you know, writing about motherhood. Um, and I when I first started writing about motherhood, there was not a lot of literature about motherhood. Um, Rita Dove had a wonderful book and Elizabeth Spires has um, the book Worldling. But those were sort of like, you know, and there's a handful of poems by Plath and Sexton. But, you know, it's kind of like I felt that motherhood somehow wasn't experience that you would put in poems or I couldn't quite find the words to make it work for me. So um, prose was um, there's a broader canvas and there's that room to elaborate, to ask questions, to think um, analytically um, and to kind of like look at look at culture and the way culture represents mothers. So that was work that I think I could do in, in prose. And so that's why um, I began working working in prose, but the um, Sylvia Plath has this uh, wonderful. She did a recording with the BBC um, about I think it's called a context, and she talks about the difference between novels and poems, and the way that um, you know a a tree might be a passing note in a novel. Um, but it could be the star of a poem, and certainly you think about her poem Elm, and that's a great illustration. Um, but she also said in that um, poem is that um, in that particular essay that a poem is like a door opening and shutting, um, and certainly the short lyric poem does that, right? That's yeah, a beautiful it moves image. very quickly. Yeah, I yeah. always love that. I think that's a great great way of thinking about the difference in the genres. When you were talking about going between the genres, something that I picked up in, uh, I think mostly in the newspaper business, but something that mm-hmm. kind of stuck with me is that people have to look at it. It's right. in your head. Yeah. But even in prose, people have to look at it, and sometimes you walk, you, you have to say, okay, you have to say this paragraph shorter, or you have to break, because mm-hmm. when people look at the block of text, they're going, oh, I'm going to let that out. Right. You know, you, you have to earn 10 or 15 lines in a row without a Right. Break. And you can't do that at the beginning. You can only do that toward the middle and toward the end. Did you find you were thinking in terms of how it would look on the page when you when you get more into memoir? Or? Um, I think originally no, but more recently I have been thinking more about that, certainly because I've been working more with the lyric essay, which is this beautiful mashup of poetry and prose. Um, and so... Um, there you have a lot more room for using white space to your advantage, mm-hmm. musically or non-musically, um, in the way that you do when you're writing poetry. So I like that. And I found that I teach a lot of nonfiction. I teach primarily nonfiction courses at Loyola. So I am, um, I find myself telling students more and more to give the reader more white space um, to craft discrete scenes that are almost cinematic. Um, because we do have a tendency, I think, with uh, our screens when we get to a word doc we could just fill it up right, right. Um, but yet we're used to doing other things like writing in a little Facebook um, you know a pro- update or we're a status update or we're writing little texts right where we are thinking about the need for shorter forms of communication 
So I think that it's important to be aware that readers are not going to like long paragraphs necessarily mm -hmm. and to try to think about ways of kind of packaging the scenes um, so that they become readable and pleasurable. But interestingly, I just taught the work of um, Mohsen Hamid, um, Exit West. It's a terrific book about refugees, and um, the book is full of long sentences. Like, he'll have a sentence that goes on. It'll be a complete sentence that will cover three-quarters of a page, and there's quite a few of those in the book. So this was a book that we were teaching um, to uh, students in the humanities, and I thought, I don't know how this is going to go over, but the theme is timely and urgent, and the narrative is captivating. So we're like, those are wins, um, but we'll see. But we'll see how this other stuff goes. And I was shocked. Um, I framed it in my class in terms of the internet phenomenon of beautiful sentences. You know, where people talk about those nuggets of novels that are meaningful or just sound great. Um, and so I got my students to start thinking about that. But they loved the book and they loved the sentences and. You know, two weeks later, we're in workshop, and I hear people saying things like, oh, you know, um, John, I noticed on page four, there's a beautiful sentence, yeah. you know. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's surprising what readers will, will accept, I think. Don't you find? Oh, I think so. Well, and, and I think it also goes back to earning it. And there are two, there things, you go. There are two things that you, that you brought up, though. One is the earning it, which is short, but the other one that's really interesting is when you're talking about, you know, getting away from... Uh, 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 the the constriction of of specific poetry, the line breaks, the line yeah, breaks and things like that. Um, those rules are kind of in place for a reason. Like if mm -hmm. you want to, if you want to talk this way, then this is the way we're going to hear you. Now you can you can depart from that, and that's mm -hmm. that's fine. But then it's not this, and so the choice has to be before you start. Do I want it to be this or that? Mm -hmm. And once you're into it, you can find ways to make it work. Like in, in, incredibly long sentences, again, you have to earn. And there's, right. That's, that's something that if you if you have the, the will and the talent or the combination thereof, you know, you can pull it off. And it has to fit the subject. That's something that you find out in the middle. That's not something you set out to do. Right, exactly. Whereas when you're when you're like, I'm going to write a sonnet, you're like, okay, well, it's going to go like this. You know, right, or, exactly. Or you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting when you choose to work within received forms, there's a format that you have to follow and that you have to. And so part of the game becomes figuring out a way to make that form work for you and to help help you discover new ways of saying things or new new material. And also to show that you selected for it. Yeah. Like yeah. That, the, 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 the form is, is also the reason. Right. Like I made a horror movie for this reason. I didn't. I wanted to show this the same way you told me. I yeah. Write it in this structure to to say I'm part of this tradition. Right. I did a. I were did a um a series of triolets. A triolet is a very short form with a very strict rhyme pattern, and um so I think it's eight lines if I'm remembering correctly because that's the first uh time I've worked with the form, and. The subject that I was working with was um, the little portraits of the Bronte sisters. There's three sisters. Um, so that kind of seemed to fit the theme of the triolet. But I ran across these internet quizzes that were like, which Bronte sister are you? And you could kind of plug, you know, you, right. you would pick your answers and it would determine which sister you would be. And so I used the form of the triolets to kind of like 
play around with that idea. And the poem's called Which Bronte Sister Are You? And so, you know, Charlotte, Anne, and Emily each have their little triolet. And the language I used is based on the stuff from the internet quizzes. But yeah. I, think that's, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was very playful. And, and watching you talk about it, clearly it was a fun experience. And I think that's one of the things where once you know the rules then you can either know exactly how to break them on purpose to show that you know the rules, but you're breaking them on purpose. But Mm -hmm. then also, you know, the rules give you this sense, almost like a puzzle. Yeah, yeah. I have, I'm going to convey this thing. Here's my structure. Now, how do I play with the language? How do I play with the beats and the the space on the page to really drive it home, to look like something I've created on purpose? I think that's clearly one of the, if you can do it well, that's one of the, I think, masterpieces of, poetry yeah and that's why it's fun to try different things in poetry I always try to encourage students to work in different genres and different forms because it really stretches your um, imagination and your ability as a writer and, and I th- if I can I'd like to talk about your background a little yeah. bit yeah what, what was your primary interest when you were an undergrad and then go forward from that's funny. I was just having a conversation with my department chair um, the other day, and we were talking about, you know, why, why some students were, or, were uh, saying, well, no, I'm not going to major in writing. I need to major in X, you know, whatever it is. And um, often it's that people feel like, um, you know, the major you should choose is not one that, um, is e- that seems easy. Sometimes people feel like drawn to the thing that is that is difficult. And I, I was telling her, I said, well, you know, I actually ended up in English because um, history was so easy and so pleasurable. In some ways, I felt like I should do English because it's harder. And I was, just, you know, affirming what right. we what we had um, talked about in patterns that we see with some of our students. So I, I did. Um, I was originally um, going to uh, do uh, philosophy and English, thinking that I might go to law school, and um, then I became interested in maybe trying communication. Um, And I think there was a course that was required for some reason, a creative writing course was required um, along the way, and so I very um, begrudgingly, you know, signed up and took that class because I never thought of myself. I could write academic work, um, but I didn't have much experience with writing creatively, although I loved literature. And I thought once I was in the class, I was exposed to contemporary literature, which I hadn't been exposed to before. Um, and so that was exciting. And then the opportunity to start like learning the craft of poetry and the craft of fiction, I found very compelling because I thought, um, this will be um, maybe not a career. I'll have to find some, <laughs> some way of earning a living. But it will be a kind of vocation where um, there will always, I'll be always raising the bar. And every time I go to work on um, a poem or a story or an essay, um, it'll be a new set of experiences. And I will be challenged to the highest level of my abilities every single time. And I just thought that was like, what more could you ask for? <laughs> right. <laughs> I love words. <laughs> what I've found as a grown-up is that if you can communicate, well, if you have a command of the language, mm. unless you want to cut someone's head open and pick around in there, right. you'll be fine. Right, and right. that's something that I think uh, a lot of kids feel like they need to get, like they think that they're at the, a very expensive Votech. And like, right, I come in here mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll give me permission to be this. And of course, when they graduate, there's no such thing. So, how did you end up deciding to stay on? Like, and, and was that was that any sort of problem? 
Well, I was encouraged in my, you know, um, as an undergrad mentored um, and, and sort of guided to go through the process of applying to graduate schools. And then, and I also, I was fortunate that um, the editor at Hopkins, uh, uh, a t- professor at Hopkins, David St. John, um, he's a wonderful poet, was the editor in, of the Antioch Review. And one of my teachers had suggested that I send out um, work, and he picked, you know, a poem that I had written for class um, for publication. And so that was, you know, amazingly validating in some ways for me to say, okay, well, maybe I can do this, and maybe going to graduate school um, will be sensible. I also knew that going to graduate school to study, you know, poetry was more about learning the craft. It was more about vacation. Uh, vacation. It was more <laughs> about evocation. It felt like vacation very often. Um, where else do you get to, you know, read all seven books of remembrance of things past but graduate school? Um, so, you know, I knew I'd have to do something else later. And I started te- teaching when I was in grad school. Um, I taught literature. And then when I was finished, I started doing part-time teaching, as many people do. Um, teaching of writing, and so that was, um, that's kind of the path that, mm-hmm. that that I was on, but I was fortunate to have support along the way, because I think, um, and it's very important, I think, for people to have communities, you know, or find communities, and one way to do that is to major in writing as an undergrad, mm-hmm. or, and go to grad school, because you get, you have a built-in community then, right. right, and sometimes when you're on your own, I know I've had pe- friends who kind of, like, dropped they gave up writing after a while. Um, sometimes just the man demands of job and life. And for some people, it was like they just didn't really feel connected to a community or they didn't continue a process of sharing work with others. And because it's kind of lonely and there's a lot of rejection. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, when you're sending yeah. your work out, you know, right? Oh, yeah, You've absolutely. experienced right, a yeah. few rejections. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of like how Tony and I became friends because, you know, like writing is such a solitary endeavor. Right, right. You know, it's not something you can, it's not really a team sport. It's something that you yeah. do by yourself. No one holds your hand, you know. and Absolutely. And then you have to come up for air and figure out, yeah. like, I just spent all this time by myself doing this thing. Is it any good? Yeah. You know, and I, so I think that having a sense of community is good. In, in many ways, you know, I mean, it's certainly a bomb for the soul, but also to, like, figure out, like, you know, how do we do this thing that we're in love with doing? Yeah. You know? I love what you're saying about that, because I know my, my sister-in-law, um, who's a speech pathologist in the public school system, has said, and she's been working more and more with um, technology in that area, but um, she said, like, it's, what you do is so self-directed, like, I could never do that. I couldn't, like, figure out how to organize my time, you know, and, and get the work done. Like there would be the demands of the child or, you know, if he has three children um, or the job. And I just wouldn't be able to figure out how to make myself sit down and write something. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was fortunate to I started at, in the newspaper business. So I, I learned that if you don't write things, they don't give you money. Anymore. Yeah, I have friends yeah. who started <laughs> out as, as journalists, you know, and they said it was the best training for being a writer because you, you know, there was something due. You had a deadline. You're not yeah. inspired. Start yeah. typing. Right. Inspired. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, nothing moves us like a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what most writers do. I mean, if we sit around and wait for inspiration, you know, what will get done? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really a, as much a physical practice, I think, mm. you know, just literally yeah. getting yourself in a chair, in a place you know, pen in hand or, you know, hands on a keyboard, you just have to do it. 
I had um, Adam Gopnik was visiting my um, one of my classes at Loyola um, back in the fall, and he talked about just exactly that, um, the need to, like, be at the desk and put in the time in the way that you do when you go to the gym, you know, and he described his process and how many hours he, he put in um, when he was doing articles for New Yorker, and my students were blown away. They were like, we never thought about having a physical practice, like thinking of writing as a physical practice, and I think for for most of us who continue to write we kind of cultivate that but we don't necessarily think of naming it for other people in that way right yeah, I yeah. until you just said it yeah 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 and you that's could. why it's good to have community because <laughs> you, you figure out you, you actually put a name I know. on i'll this take that idea that would be go. helpful there you go yeah. well as you're working with the kids for the salisbury poetry week and then of course as a professor um you know you clearly are able to move between genres how do you sort of give people the courage or the confidence or, or or even maybe the the wherewithal to say, oh, I can, I think because sometimes we get pigeonholed. We think like I'm mm-hmm. a nonfiction person and I write short stories and that's all I do and I can't write anything else. Mm-hmm. If I try something else, it's clearly just an experiment. So I think what I'm trying to sort of roundabout get to is like how do you sort of inspire people to think that that is okay <laughs> to you know sort of be good at more than more than one one component to this yeah that's 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 a great question I know in a class I taught recently it was called um apocalypse now writing for the end times we were looking at all different ways of looking at apocalyptic things and dystopian lit and things like that but the idea was that we would work in short forms and that the students could move back and forth between poetry and prose Um, And I am ridiculous about giving prompts. So we had one day where I came in just with like a bowl full of prompts that I had cut up and put wrapped up in little pieces of paper. And the students had to pick them. And they had the option like if this does it, if you really feel like I want you to try it, but if you really feel that you can't do it, you could choose another one, you know. So I try to give people flexibility that kind of like encourages them to go off you know, go outside their comfort zone um, as much as possible. And in, in the classes I was visiting um, this mass, this um, week, one of the things that I did was take in, um, take in poems that we would use as sort of models. And if you sort of think about a, a poem or a story or anything about, you know, a machine made of words, and you get people to think about how is this machine working by asking questions and listening to what they're saying about it, then you can kind of set up, um, you know, kind of like if we wanted to do one of these, what are the rules? What are the components that we would put in it? And then they kind of like, are like, oh, I I think I could do this. And you also try to set like a little bit of groundwork. We were doing post-apocalyptic postcards. And so some, some of the high school students were just brainstorming first, like who would they write a postcard to, you know? what is the vision of the world that they were, the post-apocalyptic world they'd be living in? What are some sensory details? So once they've kind of gathered the material, then they're like, oh, this machine we looked at is kind of cool, and I could do one, and I can take it in my own direction. So I think that offering structure and offering flexibility is a great way to encourage people to, to try different things. But some people are resistant, aren't they? Like, oh, yeah. you know, we'll order the same dinner every time we go to evos you know <laughs> yeah. like or we're not going to try that other beer which is why they're flights right right yeah. right yeah yeah it's i think you know sometimes you kind of get you, you find the the thing that you're good at yeah like 
well, that's just where I am now, you know? I mean, yeah. I started out when I was a teenager writing really awful poetry. I mean, it's very, very terrible. And then I took a class on creative nonfiction and short story and essay. And then I figured out how to say all the stuff I was trying to say in a poem. Apparently, I just needed more time on the page, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then, so then I was like, well, I'm never writing poetry again. And I literally never wrote another poem since right. I took, you know, that class in college. So I think sometimes See, just... Yeah, you just you're taking what you learned about writing lyrically and applying it to other genres. So thinking that the genres fit different moods, different needs, different audiences. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Stephanie, now this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for being being here and talking with us. It's so great to talk with you. I think we could continue talking for hours. <laughs> we just might. <laughs> so What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.